Now the lounge is full of farmers for the seven. Hey everybody, welcome back to Rocks Across the Pond. It is a curling podcast coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. My name is Ryan McGee and joining me as always all the way from Southampton, England is our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, how are you today? Uh, Pretty good. Spent the weekend watching curling and went to a movie today, so had a pretty relaxed weekend. Good. What'd you see? Uh, If Beale Street Could Talk. I have not heard of that. What on earth? It's by the guy who did uh, Moonlight. Remember the Moonlight that won the Academy Award oh, yeah, a few years that. ago? Yeah, the, the, yeah, yeah. Was it good? Yeah. I liked it. It's it's based off a James Baldwin novel set in the 1960s. So, yeah, it's a good movie. Okay. All right. I might check that out. Um, actually, probably not. But also, I'll, ch- <laughs> I'll check it when it, when, it gets, uh, when it gets to Netflix. I'll be able to see it. <laughs> or, yeah. uh, or HBO Go or something like that. Exactly. To a theater anytime soon. Um, we, we sounds like we both spent the weekend uh, watching curling, and I got to see some of it, and you got to see pretty much the other half of it. Um, so I guess we'll go around the world really quick and talk about the four um, the four championships that we talked that we previewed last time we were here, and just do some quick hitters. Uh, you want to start in the U.S.? Yeah, let's start. Uh, where you are, yeah. All right. You know, uh, we'll start here and we'll go east. Um, so we'll start off in Kalamazoo, Michigan, where the two champions were crowned on Saturday. And surprise, surprise, it was Jamie Sinclair and John Schuster. Sinclair really dominated on the women's side with the exception of one game that we'll get to uh, here in a bit. And on the men's side, Schuster uh, was definitely the best team throughout the week. Uh, beat Rich Ruinen three times in route to his title, and Sinclair beat Nina Roth three times as well, and that means that Jamie Sinclair is undefeated against Nina this year. We kind of talked coming into this tournament, Nina's Nina had the better year on tour, but Jamie Sinclair had got the better of her head-to-head, and that's how it played out uh, this week in Kalamazoo, was Jamie beat her three times, including kind of having control most of the game uh, in their final. It was the same way in John Schuster's final against Rich Ruin and not a whole lot of drama uh, in either of the championship games, which is a little unfortunate. Schuster went up 4 nothing after three ends and then kind of coasted. And Sinclair never, never really seemed in trouble. We got a couple of uncharacteristic misses from Nina Roth late in the game. You know, two good uh, representatives for the U.S. going to Worlds. Yeah, I think they're both. Uh, well, I mean, neither's really a surprise. So, uh, like we said, basically it was between Sinclair and Roth on the women's side, and we kind of had Schuster and Ruinen as one A and one B on the men's side, and so it played out the form pretty much. Yeah, if I if I'd had to make a pick, I probably would have taken Nina Roth coming into the week. But yeah, Jamie Sinclair dominant in her only loss. In the round robin, and really the whole week, her only loss was to Team Stephanie Sinecker, who we we got the chance to talk to Stephanie earlier this season. We, you know, we've really talked about this team and how they've how they've set up their season and set up their goals as a as a self funded team. And you know, 
first year together to make a tiebreaker, which was basically a, even though it wasn't called a three, four page playoff, it was basically a three, four page, page playoff game that they lost at the very end to Corey Christensen. I have to say performed very well at us nationals this week. And hopefully they stay together and, and keep going because this is, that's a great start for, for a team that has a lot of potential, especially, especially the way Stephanie played. She made just about every draw that she had to all week. Um, when they beat Jamie Sinclair, they stole at the very end and they, you know, they, they stole in, in, they stole at the end to, to beat Sinclair and the draw that Seneca made forced a very difficult shot from Jamie to try to win the game that she was wide on. So it wasn't, they weren't given misses. They earned the, they earned the misses that, that they got from opposing teams because they had a couple of big games there where, where they stole uh, mm. to get wins against both uh, Sinclair and uh, Emery Duberstein. But they really earned those misses with the way with their rock placement, the way they played uh, at the end of those games. Yeah. I mean, I didn't see see much of it uh, just because of the time difference, but uh, I kind of was following the results a lot on curling zone. And yeah, I mean, I think it's good to see. I think uh, certainly with the rise of the high performance program in the U.S., there's been a bit of... Uh, you know, concerned that 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 self-formed and self-funded teams don't really have a shot. But I think like the Seneca teams definitely have demonstrated that if you go out, play on tour, get a good coach, do all the right things, you can certainly put yourself in the mix. And for a first-year team together uh, to make playoffs, um, that's that's quite an accomplishment. I'm sure I'm sure that was kind of probably the upper bound of their goals for the season, just kind of going off what what Stephanie said she was on the podcast for us. And I think they can kind of look back at this season and then spend the summer. They, they decide to stick together to kind of plan out next year and figure out how to build and become, become kind of a perennial uh, contender at the U S women's uh, championship. They've really become the people's champion because one, they're really good on social media. They are a fun follow. If you don't follow team Seneca on, on Twitter Two. They're fun to watch play because they're really aggressive. They like a lot of rocks in play. You know, they they don't fear giving up too. You know, they're they're still going to play aggressive. They're still going to play draws. Uh, so their games are interesting to watch. Um, and three, they you know they connect to the people like us that are out there playing league and hoping to someday play in play in a high level event like this. You have Stephanie who started at an arena club. Um, players that play in the Great Lakes Curling Association, which isn't the biggest hotbed. Um, hopefully that region has a little bit more respect now after Team Seneca did what they did this week. So, you know, they're the people's champ. Yeah, I think it's it's good to see. And so hopefully, like when we talk about growing the game in the U.S., that uh, it's, this is one of the things I've been pounding on all year is – the big gap that has to be closed is between people who are like the top of the club level play and the kind of elite high performance uh, teams. Right. So mm -hmm. it's that competitive feel that's kind of in between those two tiers that we really need to see kind of building up, especially in the U S if you want the U S to have the kind of depth you need to be perennial contenders for a world championship. So hopefully like the Seneca team sticks around and kind of can build on this, but hopefully other teams in the U S see that, Hey, they can do that too. They can kind of plan on a similar kind of season, 
draw on similar resources, um, kind of go pursue or, order of merit points and, and try to build up a competitive profile so then they can get to U.S. nationals and, and put on a similar performance as well. I'll try to touch on that again because that's something else that can come up when we talk about the Japanese championships here in a minute. Uh, but yeah, that hope for anyone out there who's who feels like they're a good club curler watching what Team Seneca did this week. Hopefully, you're inspired by that team to to go out and try to try to see how you'll do against that field. You know, don't be don't be afraid to get out there and, and test yourself against the best like that. Um, and we saw that on the men's side too. Uh, Steve Berklid's Stephen Berklid's team from Washington acquitted themselves very well this week. Um, you know, I, they I don't think they qualified last year, but they they kind of swept through and and qualified this year through the challenger round. Did very well this week. Barely missed out on the playoffs. They were fun to watch. Um, and then when when Berklid was helping out with the TESN broadcast really brought a lot of good insight. If you can go back and watch, I think it was the round robin game between Roth and Sinclair and Stephen Berklid was helping out on the broadcast for that and really, um, really was able to explain how, how things were, were going on through that game in a way that even a newcomer to this game can understand. So if you want to learn learn some strategy, learn how can it, it can be applied to even how you play at the club level. Go back and watch that game and listen to what uh, Stephen Berklid was saying during that broadcast. Uh, also on the men's side, uh, ho-hum, Todd Burr made the playoffs again, right? Uh, he was the only high-performance team to, uh, only non-high-performance team to make a semifinal. Uh, so that was that was good to see. He's got some some younger guys playing playing with him and they, they even got Michael Roos into a game, I believe. So they were. It was good to see them back in the playoffs. Yeah, no, it's a good run by them. And so again, it shows that uh, it's not only high performance teams that can make playoffs, and uh, it's it's kind of just good to see, right? And it's good to see kind of Todd Bird just kind of keep rolling out there. Yeah, especially in a year where they didn't go out on tour a whole lot. They, I'm not even sure they left Minnesota, but. He had his team ready to go by the time the the big show came around, as he always does. Never bet against Todd Burr at U.S. Nationals. Moving over to where some surprising drama happened this weekend is your island, um, a little bit north of where you are in Scotland, where we had a surprising champion on the women's side, Team Sophie Jackson. When you and I were previewing this championship, we both... You know, we we kind of just brushed it off. I think we previewed the women's tournament in Scotland for all of thirty seconds, and we said we'd be surprised if Eve Muirhead lost a game in the whole thing. And not only did she lose, she lost three times to Sophie Jackson, who is your Scottish champ. Uh, Bruce Mowat, after losing his first game, uh, came through and won on the men's side. So Sophie Jackson wins, upsetting Eve Muirhead in that championship game, but then we learned later on that right now British curling is saying that she cannot go to Worlds. Why is that, Jonathan? So, uh, well, British and Scottish curling, right? Okay, both of them. Okay. So so, uh, it gets a bit complicated. Uh, Basically, the CEO, CEO of both British curling and Scottish curling is the same person, even though they're separate 
entities. And British Curling is the entity that funds and selects the teams that get Team GB performance funding. So they, they basically are selecting the Olympic teams. Uh, because Britain is weird and likes to do it its own way, uh, <laughs> um, uh, Scotland is a separate member association from England and Wales. And so when Scotland plays in the World Championships, it's Scotland, but in the Olympics, it's Team, team GB, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, what's happened here is one of the things that British Curling runs on top of the Olympic program and um, coaching the high-performance teams is they also select a team for the World University Games. And so Team Jackson because they're all still university age, uh, were selected kind of pretty early in the year as the WUGS team, the World University Games team. And that's set for March 2nd to 12th in central Russia, in Siberia. And then the Women's Worlds is March 16th to 24th in Denmark. So I'm not, I don't, I'm, ba I'm basically going off social media and a bit of kind of text gossip. But as I understand, Sophie Jackson, um, obviously won. And then when she came off the ice was, was told that she, because she'd committed to being the WUGS team earlier in the year and team GB had already committed funding to that, they were expected to still go to the WUGS and because they have um, expectations about the preparation that a team goes through, they didn't feel that they, that the Jackson team could do the turnaround time quickly enough from Siberia to uh, Denmark, basically three, four days later. So they basically advised uh, Team Jackson to, uh, with, they basically said you have to go to the WUGS, not to the Worlds. Oh, wow. It seems like Jackson then appealed. I'm not sure if they appealed right on the spot, but an appeal was put through pretty quickly. I don't, I don't know exactly how that happened. It's going off the kind of the officially read press statement. And so there's an agreement to have a review today. And then apparently there's going to be a decision issued tomorrow morning. So if you go on either Twitter or <laughs> Facebook right now, the comments are like 99 to one uh, expressing outrage at the fact that Team Jackson would be stripped of their right to go to the world championship. The fact that Team Jackson appealed or requested a review tells me they want to go to the World Championship. It's not clear what effect that has on the WUGS because we're basically looking at sending a team to the WUGS in less than a month's time, which is, is certainly possible, but probably raises its own questions. And I think it also perhaps, like just looking at the comments, is going to raise a lot of questions about the power that British curling has on um Scottish curling, right? And we've seen similar things like this in the US. And actually, I think for people listening in Canada, this is probably what's going to be coming to Canada pretty soon, I think. And this is just basically the effects of the Olympics, right? That you have these high performance directors and their jobs depend upon um, results in international competitions. And so when push comes to shove, they're going to make the decisions that they think give them the best chance to win. But that kind of natural interest is often going to clash against the kind of tradition of the game where the winner of the national championship gets to represent the country. And so it looks like this is what's happened uh, here. So probably by the time this pod podcast goes live, we'll have an answer. But it's, it's kind of been interesting to see uh, 
especially the pushback. The pushback's been pretty interesting. So it's basically, you know, I think everyone says because Team Jackson won three times in a row, it's ridiculous that they don't get to go to the, the Worlds. And uh, I think the idea of, of kind of a bureaucrat or an executive kind of stepping in and handpicking a team after that team's been beaten on the ice, I think really rubs a lot of people the wrong way. I just think that this would look bad if they told them that they can't go to Denmark, especially the the way that they won this con the way that they won this championship and the fact that this year's worlds doesn't have any determining any determination on who qualifies for the Olympics. Yeah, and I actually think in a certain sense, I think even if British curling's worried about results on the ice, this is a really short-sighted decision to not send uh, team Jackson, right? Because they're the young team. Eve's had hip surgery, we all know about. I, I think that they, like on the on the men's side, at least, it's pretty clear they've built up three good top twenty kind of high performance teams, right? And so, in a certain sense, this week, it, what, you could tell that they weren't really concerned if Patterson, uh, Moet, or uh, Muirhead went, right? It, it, they, it's like pick one of those three; all three will do well, right? On the women's side. Obviously, there's a bit of concern here about Jackson, but the only way you get a kind of team that's of an equal caliber to Muirhead, which is what they're trying to kind of build the Sophie Jackson rink up to, is by giving them the chance to play in a world championship, right? So maybe they're not medal contenders this year, although Sophie Jackson does have juniors in it, with juniors experience in the silver medals from there, but maybe they don't do that well this year, but at least that gives them the experience so that in the near future, if they qualify again, uh, the next time they go, they have that experience, right? To say that the WUGS does that, I think is a bit short-sighted, right? I think that there's actually a case to just go a little bit further down the the pecking order and grab a good junior women's team and send them instead. Yeah, I'd agree. Because it, it seems like there's a couple of good junior teams uh, on the women's side in Scotland, and they would do just as well as the Sophie Jackson team would against that competition. I mean, it, how... For people who aren't familiar with it, like how high, how, what, what level of competition is the, the WUGS uh, event or winner? Yeah. I forget what, I don't, I don't remember what they call it now. It's not WUGS anymore. It's some different name. Uh, I can't read it's university ad or whatever. I think everyone calls it the WUGS. All the curlers I know <laughs> the WUGS. Um, but I mean, like Kelsey Rock, uh, Kelsey Rock was representing Canada a few years ago. Um, I'm trying to think like basically good, like uh, good kind of teams just out of juniors or junior teams often play in the, in this event. Right. So it's not a joke. Like Anna Sidorova was playing in it three, four years ago. Uh, the, the, the qualification standards are a bit weird. You actually only have to be enrolled in one class at a university or kind of, you know, post post-secondary institution. So there certainly has been a lot of bending of the rules that I've heard about over the years by certain people. Uh, so it's a pretty good standard, right? It's, it's probably a little bit above juniors, but you could take a good junior team from Scotland, drop them in there, and it's not like they're going to make fools of themselves, right? Because it's, uh, it's going to have teams from all over the world in that sense. Uh, so, I mean, to me, it's a no-brainer. You basically let the Sophie Jackson team go to Denmark if they say they want to do both, it's certainly possible for them to do both. I can I can understand the Scottish curling point that doing two week-long events back-to-back is kind of a recipe for failure. It's not doing two bond spiels back-to-back, but it's two 10-day events with all that goes into it. So the obvious move to me is send the Sophie Jackson rink 
to Denmark and then go find uh, four eligible university age players, whether it's juniors or just out of juniors, and put them together and just roll with the wugs. And then you get a bit more development and depth doing it that way, right? Just kind of next team up kind of thing. What do you think the ruling is going to be? Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm actually genuinely curious. I, I think I think it should be take Team Jackson. There's a lot of pressure on Scottish curling now. Like the, I think the social media, these people are humans too, right? Like having been on the USCA board, public pressure on an organization does work. Like there's there were times when I was on the board and there was backlash to policies and that did lead to people either reconsidering or thinking about different ways to do things. So I think the pressure certainly certainly matters. Uh, my hunch and my hope is that there are some people in that room who kind of see the Sophie Jackson, Team Sophie Jackson perspective and kind of realize it's a bit bonkers to do that and then look for some re- a kind of reasonable way around it. Because to be honest, there's no there's probably a little bit of cost in terms of like changing kit and changing names on tickets and all that, but there's not like a big cost to sending another team late. They may not perform as well, but if it's really a developmental event, it's a good way to develop a kind of second team that way. All right. So I will, I'll try to get this up before uh, that announcement happens. Uh, But yeah, we, that, I mean, that may be the most interesting thing that happens all weekend in curling, right? (laughs) I mean, certainly over here, that's that's probably the story of the year. And if they if they pick Muirhead over Jackson, um, Scottish Curling still a member run organization, and so I expect a full members revolt. And we've certainly seen that in other times in in other associations, right? Where uh, well, certainly in USA Curling, certainly in curling in Curling Canada, we certainly had cases where decisions are made that are unpopular, and the kind of popular heat can lead to reversal of bad decisions. So if it is kind of near head over Jackson, I do think that some of the executives of Scottish Curling better better watch out because <laughs> I think I think it's such a universally unpopular opinion that um, you know people will kind of call an extraordinary board meeting and want, want to let their views be known and perhaps you know some heads will roll which isn't necessarily a bad thing right it's it's important that leaders of different organizations be held accountable in some way shape or form so i think a bit of pushback is always good all right i have a i have a feeling that we will we will be talking about this uh later on down the road as well all right moving moving to switzerland not uh not many surprises in the in the Swiss championships. Your champions are on the women's side, Team Terenzoni, and on the men's side, Team De Cruz. We kind of talked about this format where if you went nine and zero, which was seven and zero during the round robin, and then two and zero during their final series, if you went nine and zero during all that, there wouldn't be a championship game. Uh, Peter De Cruz's team almost did that. They won their first eight. And then they lost their last um, their last final series game to Yannick Schwaller, which meant that they got a rematch, which Peter de Cruz then won. Tiranzoni wound up being beating uh, Benia Felcher's team in the final. Both of those games uh, were really fun to watch. They both went to extras, so they were you know both games were back and forth. The Swiss and U.S. championships were the two that I was able to watch uh, over the weekend. I was not able to see Scotland uh, or Japan. Uh, you were fortunately you you fortunately were were giving me play by play of of the Scotland 
of the Scotland uh, Championship Games because the BBC does not allow uh, anyone outside of the UK to watch any of its streamed content. Yeah, so yeah, that's kind of interesting, right? So, uh, yeah, it's, I think for the US curling, it's great, the 12th End Sports Network, right? That they, that, that they kind of make it open everywhere in the world, but geolocking is an issue. Canada geolocks, so if you're not in Canada... You either have to hope that a provider in your country gets the rights or you've got to do some slightly dodgy maneuvers on the internet in order to watch the Canadian curling content. Uh, and I, th- I think, unfortunately, Scotland's kind of fallen into the t- same trap, right? So in a sense, it's good. It's good that the BBC is now covering the Scottish finals and it's good that it's basically you can get it to the BBC iPlayer app. Uh, it's a fairly decent standard. It's like a step up from a web stream, I'd say. Uh, not quite kind of a full TV package, but it certainly is possible to, to kind of follow along really well and, and good commentators. But uh, yeah, it's kind of holds the game back a little bit when, you know, these other developing countries, these aren't even developing countries, they're established countries, aren't letting everyone around the world see see their uh, their kind of championship finals, at least. Yeah, especially when it wasn't something that was being broadcast on the BBC. It was online only, but... Yeah, but we're we're lucky here in the U.S. that ESPN owns part of TSN, which allows us to see the Scotties and the Briar through ESP watch the Watch ESPN app. So we're fortunate there. Um, but yeah, it was fun to watch the the two Swiss championships. Both are really good games. The really the only the the interesting thing in Switzerland was on the women's side. Uh, Team Winchanka without Vichanka uh, made the playoffs. Uh, they're that's a, that's a younger team and their skip i think left in the either in the middle of the week or at the beginning of the week to go to the world junior championships where she's the alternate for the team that is representing switzerland so that was three members of her team with uh yana stritt uh skipping that team wound up making the playoffs so we talked about how deep things were on the women's side in Switzerland and didn't really even mention that team. And then they have a big week and they go to the playoffs. So kind of crazy how deep things are on the women's side in Switzerland. Yeah, it's good to see. I think it's, uh, I think the Swiss model kind of makes a good case for um, slightly smaller curling countries, keeping it as an open qualification process that, uh, you know, that, that's the one way you build depth in your country. Because the, the ideal is that you're not putting all your eggs in one basket, but you have three, four, five teams that can compete at an elite level. And so if one of them wins, you're, you're regardless of which one wins, you're happy to see them go to the world. So Switzerland, certainly the women's side, has a pretty deep field. And, uh, you know, I guess it wasn't a big surprise in the end who won, but it's also a good sign that Switzerland can kind of rule out, you know, a team from second or third kind of tier down and they'd still still probably have a pretty good showing internationally. Yeah, and I think I think their qualification process is similar to the US. The top teams on tour get in and then they also have a, a play down for the the final spots in the tournament. So similar to the US model and kind of kind of a similar result. You had you had some teams that maybe didn't get out on tour as much, maybe weren't as well known, but who, who made the playoffs. So yeah, some, probably a little bit of similarity there between the U S and Switzerland. And then moving on to Japan, uh, I got to watch a lot of these games on YouTube. It kind of works out. Their morning draws were on at 6 30 PM and 
10, 20 p.m. Eastern time. So I didn't get to see the ones that were going on in the middle of the night here in the U.S., but I got to see those those early draws, which were fun. Their finals were not available because they were broadcast by NHK. So the, the YouTube broadcasts were kind of the secondary games and the main games were on NHK, which you couldn't see here in the States. But I think I think they have some sort of premium service that is available here. So that at least makes sense why they didn't have it available to everyone. But again, the geo-blocking was kind of lame. They had, if you were if you were in Japan, you were able to see for every single game they had um, cameras set up just on the houses that you could watch. So if you're, the game that you were interested in wasn't on the YouTube feed or wasn't being broadcast on NHK, you could at least watch what was going on um what was going on in the house that they were shooting at uh during the game so it's kind of crazy how into curling it appears japan is i've uh kind of gotten knee deep into japanese curling twitter uh just from talking about the event a little bit and they have some big curling fans there uh in japan and or the first night of the tournament, the first women's game available on YouTube was uh, wound. It wound up being a preview of the championship game. It was Team Nakajima and Team Fujisawa. Team Fujisawa is the bronze medalist from Pyeongchang. And looking at the YouTube feed um, that night during the game they had 13,000 viewers on YouTube of this game featuring team Fujisawa. So who knows how many viewers were watching on NHK when they wound up meeting uh last night for the championship. But yeah, crazy numbers on 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 YouTube when you compare it to, you know, just the games that are available uh even through World Curling's uh World Curling's YouTube channel. So on the women's side, bit of an upset. Uh, team Nakajima goes undefeated throughout the entire tournament and beats Team Fujisawa three times, including in the page one, two game and in the championship game. Uh, the Nakajima team, probably not as well known here in the States as Yoshimura and Fujisawa. And the reason for that is they don't get out into North America as much. The other reason for that was the year that they won the Japanese championship, which was in 2017 with uh, Shiaki Matsumura um, as the skip then. The new skip is now uh, Sena Nakajima. When they won in 2017, Japan had not did not qualify for Worlds that year. They didn't do well enough at PACCs to have a world spot. So even though they were the Japanese champion, champion, they didn't get to go to Worlds. This time they will. So they're going to be a little bit more of a household name, at least among North American curling fans, when they get to go to Worlds uh, later this season. They, uh, you know, they were fun to watch. I got to see a couple of their games uh, on the on the YouTube feed. Uh, they have a nice uh, down weight hit game that can really flip ends around even when uh, play is getting driven toward the center. So I think they'll do well, even though they, we haven't really seen them on tour. We haven't really seen them at slams. Uh, I think they'll, I think they'll do well when, when they go to worlds here uh, later this year in Denmark uh, on the men's side, also a little bit of a good story uh, team Utah Matsumura. They, they, 
win the Japanese championship, beating a uh, team from Tokyo, uh, Team Kanda, in the championship game. Uh, our friends Go Aoki did not repeat. They finished third this year. Uh, but Team Matsumura wins. Um, they started out this season as Team Abe. Shinya Abe is their vice, and he throws their lead rocks. They actually finished second in this tournament three out of the last four years, so they finally get a championship. Uh, they've been a really good team on tour. We've seen them um, in a few spiels here in North America, and we saw them a couple times at the at the Curling World Cup. So another team that I think will, I think this is the best men's team in Japan. Uh, and our, our friends who are Team Iwe fans will kind of be mad at us for that, but I think that they've distanced themselves as the best men's team in Japan. So I think, they're, I th- I think Japan's going to have two very good entrants into Worlds this year. Yeah, and that's exciting to see too. I think it's, uh, I mean, A, despite our grumbling about geolocking, I think if you go back four years, <laughs> like I don't think anyone really cared about oh, world championship, national championships in other countries, right? So yeah. uh, it's great to see actually a lot of curling now available through online streaming. And it's kind of creating in the curling community a lot more knowledge about um, both the national representatives and how they get there, but also kind of the, you know, second and third place teams in those countries who may eventually get to those world championships. You know, growing up, it'd just be like, you know, I were growing up for me in Canada, you'd follow the Briar and Scotties and then uh, you get to the world. So this be some people from countries and you had no idea how they got there. Right. And you, you had some people who'd be their kind of perennial contenders and others, the names might change, but there just wasn't the knowledge. And to be honest, the quality wasn't quite there, but now we're really seeing what kind of one of the Olympic effects is not just the global game, but really genuinely elite teams in countries all over the planet. And that's really good to see. So in Japan on the women's side, they kind of have what they call the big four. Uh, so team Nakajima, which is team Chubu electric power. Uh, we know the Fujisawa team. They are uh, loco Solare. Uh, team Yoshimura is Hokkaido Bank Fortius, and Team Kawana is Fuji-Q. In fact, three of those teams, Yoshimura, Nakajima, and Kawana, their teams are, are owned by corporations. And that's, I think they are employed by those corporations. Uh, Fujisawa's team, they all live in a city called uh, Kitami, um, which is in northern as far north as, as you can go basically in Japan on the island of Hokkaido. But the other three teams are owned by corporations. So you get the big four into this tournament and the rest of the field is these basically amateur teams who won regional tournaments going up against um, the big four who have distanced themselves because of they they have the funding to go out and test themselves on tour to play against better, better competition um, and be able to practice more often. So they've distanced themselves from these, uh, from basically the rest of the country. And the, the, the big four did not lose a game to anyone other than each other during this tournament. So they've kind of distanced themselves on the men's side. You have team Matsumura who, I think is the only men's team that kind of has that that same kind of setup where they're 
they have the financial backing that allows them to get on tour. The the team Eway, which includes Go Aoki, who is a, a junior skip that we saw at last year's Worlds. I think they're associated with uh, a university there in Sapporo. But on the men's side, it's there's not the funding available so far that is there on the women's side. So things are a little deeper on the men's side, top to bottom, and you can have anyone beat anyone at, at, at any time. But on, on the women's side, we're starting to get what we've seen in, uh, in Japan. We're seeing what we've seen in Canada, where you're getting quasi-professional teams who are kind of distancing themselves. And it gets to the point where you have to ask the question, is this really good for curling? It's the same question that we're asking in Canada. It's the same question we're asking in the US. Um, and in fact, Japan is kind of changing up the way that you even qualify for their nationals coming up uh, before you had basically the, def- the, the defending champion, you had a, a top tour team, and then Hokkaido had three spots and the other four, um, the other four regions had, had spots to get to the nine teams. But coming up after next year, you're going to have the defending champion, the defending runner up, the top world curling tour team, a wild card team that gets to, uh, that, that will be selected by the Japanese curling association and then one spot for each of the five regions. So you're almost guaranteeing that those top four are going to be back next year. It'll be, it's hard to imagine any of the big four on the women's side, not fitting into one of those spots. And we know that Nakajima and Fujisawa will be there because they played each other uh, in the championship. So the the same things that, that we're seeing in Canada and the U.S. that we're having to ask, you know, is this really good for grassroots curling? You know, it's not limited to just North America. It's happening uh, everywhere in this sport now that, now that the Olympics has become the main goal. And, you know, you're you're, you're concerned about funding and you're concerned about how your um, federation does at the world level. And it's starting to affect, you know, the day-to-day curler. Yeah. And it, I guess it depends. Well, the, I guess there's two things, right? So one, I'm not super bothered by how teams are selected as long as there's a pathway, right? Yeah. And if, if, if teams based on order of merit or kind of history or track record get advanced a little bit in the in the kind of qualification process, I don't think anyone has a huge problem with that, right? We see that even in Canada for decades now, like the basically since the boycott, uh, teams that uh, either are kind of top placed in terms of order of merit uh, each year in Canada on CTRS standings often get advanced the provincials or defending champions also get advanced the provincials. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's, that seems reasonable. Uh, but the issue is, can a team come along and, and still qualify and punch through? Right. So we saw that, and it, it, we saw that this year with the Seneca team, saw it with the McDonald team in Ontario. And so for me, as long as there's still a path for developing teams to qualify, go out, put the work in on tour, and they still have a shot if they come along and knock somebody off, I think that's fine, right? I think I think the bigger concern is where we see something like we're seeing in Scotland where uh, the officials, the people managing the game, say we don't like the results on ice after the team's kind of done everything they need to do to, to get to Worlds and they kind of come in and, and kind of try to overturn that because 
ultimately the whole point of competition is to decide who's better on that day. Right. <laughs> and it's like the basic, the, the basic reason of stepping onto the ice for two teams decide who's better on that day. And we agree that this event has significance because the team's going to go, the team that wins gets to go to worlds. And so as long as there's a path for those developing teams to kind of come up and maybe it's, maybe it's a multi-year process. Again, like looking at the, the Seneca team, a good example, like they picked out a set of goals for this year. And I think they probably, you know, ticked all their goals off for the season, right? And they'll, they'll sit down and say, okay, what do we have to do now to take the next step next year, right? And so as long as there are paths in place, resources in place for developing teams to kind of come up and, and grow, I think that's good for everybody. It's when the door's being closed behind other people because the resources are only going to a few, then you see a lot of people dropping off and you kind of have this kind of call, what I call colony collapse, basically, or curling colony collapse, right? That there's not many teams underneath. And I think we are seeing that on the women's side in Scotland, right? Where only four teams signed up for the Women's Scottish Championship. And you got to think, like, is that a good thing? Is it is it a good thing to put all your eggs in the, the Eve Muirhead basket as good a curler as she is? Or is it wise to kind of build your your bench and your depth and your farm system or whatever you want to call it, right? And that's that's not, you know, that's that's kind of the really important thing is what's being put in place to let the the kind of developing teams come up the ranks. You know, and that leads us right into the the Scotties and the Briar, and because those are the events that are the the Scotties just started, and we'll talk about that here in a minute, as well as what we think is going to happen in the Briar. But the big thing this year is residency rules. That's been a big topic of conversation, and everyone's coming up with what their fix is. And I think the reason for that is Curling Canada has tried to make everyone happy, and them trying to make everyone happy has led to no one being happy. Um, and what we just talked about with how Japan is going to have their, um, have their teams chosen for their national championship is kind of similar to what Mike Fournier put out as, as his option for how to, how to fix the briar. You know, everyone has their, their opinion on how to, how to fix the briar and Mike Fournier, um, you know, he's a guy who, is a very, very good curler. He's one of those people that's probably in that that region that's between the top tier Grand Slam teams and the guys who go out on Wednesday night and play in league. You know, he's in he's in that that middle class of curler that really if if it if, if that is neglected, this whole thing could fall apart, as you've written um as you've written about Jonathan. Yeah, I'd say that Mike's <laughs> several steps above a Wednesday night curler. I mean, knowing him and having played against them kind of quite a while ago. Uh, I mean, there's especially in Canada, there's a lot of gradation, right? You but, at least know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I know what you're trying to say. I, I'd say, like, in my mind, there's, if I were to break it down, right, there's basically club. And so there's like different gradations in club. But then there's teams that I would say are competitive. And I define competitive curler as someone who, a enters whatever play down they're eligible for leading to a world championship. And then B in order to prepare for that event goes out and plays in competitive bond spiels, normally bond spiels with order of merit points attached to them. So that to me is competitive. And then, you know, the, the, the next tier up is what I'd call like elite and then slam. So elites kind of like your top, top 50 in the world say, and I think Fournier is kind of in that category where, 
fully capable of beating anyone on any given day, right? I'm, I'm sure. I, I know he played a Dean a few years ago and beat him, and you know he's he's very capable of beating any elite team. Those teams are more likely to win than not, but he's kind of in that what I kind of call elite tier, and then top tier I'd say is kind of like the top ten teams in each kind of OOM standing kind of slam slam teams that basically are successful enough that they get funding and can basically do it as a full-time job, right? And the concern that I see happening is a lot of the old elite teams are just packing it in, saying the gap between the professional slam teams and them is too much to close. And if you're an elite player like that, going back to Wednesday night curling (laughs) is pretty boring, right? So like they're the ones who are kind of really at risk. And if that group drops away, then the competitive teams underneath them also start to drop away. And then it's not really clear what you're left with, right? So like when I was playing in Montreal late 90s, I think we had 56 teams, 56 to 60 teams signing up in kind of the Montreal area on the men's side for Briar Playdowns. And this year, I think maybe 15 teams in all of Quebec signed up or something, something really low, like less than 20. So these days, about a third of the number of teams that used to sign up in Montreal for Briar Playdowns signed up in the entire province. So that gives you a sense of how much contractions happened over the last generation. And that's in a province that doesn't have a Mike McEwen or a Kevin Cooey. That's a province that someone who's really good at the club level stands a somewhat reasonable chance of being able to go to the Briar. Yeah, that's it, you're not going to run into you know even even JM right Menard the Menardrake they're a very good team but they were not a full time pro team right and so you know the, you, you certainly have a chance against them in a way you might not against say a Gushu or a Kui or a McEwen. Mm-hmm. So, in what makes this difficult, in what makes it different from the way the U.S. has kind of built in the way to, to play into the national championship and the way Japan has a regional ability to play into their national championship is you have to deal with tradition with the Scotties and the Briar and the provincial format, which is very unique. And, you know, the, the, the question that I've posed a few times is, you know, what, what makes the Briar and the Scotties? Is it the player or is it the jacket? And I think that what makes it special and what makes it something that people tune into, and I'm sure there's a lot of people in Canada that they watch one curling tournament a year or two curling tournaments a year, and it's the Briar and the Scotties, and they they watch because their province is in it. Yeah, I think I think that's part of it. I mean, it's also the history and the tradition. And to be kind of completely honest, because of that history and tradition, it matters more. Right, like yeah, I, I as an I'm an I'm an American, and I agree with you. I think that the the provincial thing makes it unique, and I think that what we don't talk about a lot is, in order for curling to be strong, it has to be strong in Canada. If curling were to ever fall apart at the grassroots level in Canada, the whole sport is really hosed. Yeah, I think that, that's what I'm. That's kind of genuinely what I'm worried about. We talked about this before. Is that a lot of Olympic sports, it's basically the 20 or 30 people who do that Olympic sport for their national association do it, and nobody else does it, right, in that country. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing that says that you need a million people curling to be an Olympic gold medalist, right? And so 
you could end up with a situation where you have 20 to 30 TV teams around the world. And, you know, there's no other curlers besides that. I'm not saying there's the curling clubs are going to go away, but you'll just have a kind of a massive clawback in terms of the number of curlers, the size of the sport, but that, that also means the opportunities for local and grassroots players to play uh, and the opportunity for kind of the game to grow and develop. And so there are ways in which the elite and the kind of grassroots level are in conflict, right? There certainly are ways in which success from the elite teams can drive growth. And we've talked about that too, but there are these tensions too that really need to be thought through so that we don't end up basically turning into a completely professional sport with, you know, a handful of teams able to do it. And then, the game not being accessible to people in large parts of the world simply because there are no curling rinks there because we don't really need that many curling rinks. Part of it's an identity crisis for these tournaments. So I'm not, I guess one school of thought is you need the best players playing in your best tournament. If you think at other sports, I'm not sure if that's always the case, right? Like you're a huge college football fan and the college football players aren't necessarily, are definitely not the best football players on the planet, but college football still gets a massive following. Right. And they have pretty strict residency rules, funding rules, all that. Obviously, there's a lot of kind of stories of workarounds there. But, you know, there's there's pretty strict controls about who's eligible, how long they're eligible to do it and kind of a lot of criteria to make sure you keep it kind of an amateur thing. You know, same thing with, like, say, the FA Cup in football. Right. It's it's kind of a mix of kind of elite, the best teams in the world, but also kind of your local club side can enter the tournament and see how far it goes. So I'm not a believer that it has to be. 12 super teams of the superstars, right? They, they, every year there's a celebrity skip who breaks out at, at these events who's actually not one of the elite players. One of the reasons people love these events is that you do see the, the top players in the country, but you also see, you know, like people who might, uh, like, like Jamie Cooey is kind of the classic Briar call to hero, right? Like he's tweeting about his drinking at the patch and the next day he's throwing runbacks against his brother, right? So it's... Uh, <laughs> Like that's part of the Briar and Scotties too. And so if you make it completely a, a bunch of kind of really boring robo curlers, right? Like the slams are kind of increasingly becoming, the event can also lose a lot of its magic that way too. It's, it's like the NCAA tournament uh, in basketball, the NCAA basketball tournament here in the USA. The 68 teams that make that tournament are not the best 68 teams in NCAA basketball because you have the ability to win your conference tournament and get an automatic bid into the tournament. But the reason that that tournament is popular isn't because of the number one seeds. The, what made that tournament are those early round games where you get a chance to see one of the automatic qualifiers from a very small school get their chance against Goliath in a one-game one game situation where the winner's going to advance and the loser's going home. And those upsets and those small teams are what has made that tournament what it is today and what has made CBS a lot of money. Yeah. And, and actually one of the things I loved about provincial playdowns this year, because we, we get, we follow it so much more closely these days is those upsets happen too. They happen in Alberta. They happen in Saskatchewan. Right. And people are like, who's Ted Appleman? Right. Anyone who's not kind of said on Twitter, that is 100% a made up name. (laughs) Exactly. Right. And it's like, he's a good curler. He is fully capable of beating, you know, team Cooey and team Botcher. He just doesn't, he just hasn't for whatever reason, been able to punch through to the slam level, but that those are exciting games too. 
right? We saw that in Ontario too, that the, 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 the non-TV team pulling off the upset. And that's part of the magic of sport too, right? And, and again, it's we saw it with Sophie Jackson's rink too, right? It's Here's a team that unless you're doing a really deep dive into European curling, you probably, you know, haven't heard of that team. And you're like, how did they beat Team Muirhead three times in a row, right? Uh, that's ma- That's part of the magic of sport too. And so you've got to make sure that that happens, right? That personally, I find the slams a bit soulless. It's just, well, first of all, it's a bit ridiculous. You can go one and three, make the top final eight through a tiebreaker, then win three games and win a slam, right? It's, it's I'd love to go to a bond spiel where I go one and three. And make the I, think, I think one and three, you're not going to make. To their credit, I think two and two gets you into a tiebreaker. I think one and three gets you a, a trip home on Friday night. Well, if, eight, if, eight out, if you have a 12-team slam, and some of them have 12 teams in it, right, and eight teams make the playoffs or six teams make the playoffs, you're, it's pretty it's, – there's a lot of kind of teams squeaking into the back door and then rolling, right? It's not uh, – it's fine, but it's basically the same top teams playing each other all the time. Whoever's hot that weekend wins, right? Yes. And fair enough. It's the same thing with like the, the Brian Scotties. Okay, we know at the end it's going to be the top teams there on the Sunday. Fine. But there's, the whole week is great. There's always going to be one or two upsets. There's always going to be a team sniff around for the playoffs that we haven't quite heard of. And that's part of the magic too. It's exactly what you said. It's like the NCAA, right? Like if Jamie Cooey... Or Kerry Galusha has got a has got a serious shot this this time around of making it out of their pools, and then they're one or two games away from making the playoffs. They can put on a great run, right? Like JM, one of the reasons Menards our kind of cover poster boy on our Twitter feed is, you know, he would he was not out on tour. He was on tour, but he was not kind of in the slams. But every year he'd go to the Briar, and he didn't care who he was playing. He'd show up and make shots and put pressure on everybody. And I'm, I guarantee you, a lot of those top tier teams were not looking forward to playing JM. They knew that. They knew he was a good thrower. They knew he was a good shooter. And if he was hot, he could get them a run for their money. And that those make for exciting games and exciting events. So now you have to find a way to balance putting the top teams in there and keeping the traditional Briar and Scotty's format, making both, you know, the people who follow this because of the provincial format and the sponsors happy, right? The, the the TV networks who want as many viewers as possible to keep their sponsors happy. Um, and you have to keep the competitive club curler happy. How do you do? All right. What's your idea, Jonathan? We've seen, uh, if you haven't read, um, if you hadn't read Mike Fournier's idea, go to inthehousecurling.blogspot.com and read his idea for the Briar format. I have my idea. What's yours, Jonathan? How do you, is there a way to fix this? All right. So, so let's, should we talk about Mike? So let's talk about the three. So, so I'm actually of the view that maybe the best thing to do is let the Briar and Scotties be what they are and let the Canada Cup be the event that selects Team Canada for the World Championship. Okay, and you've then, stolen my idea. <laughs> so you're on the same page as me. So let's, let's just talk through the merits for that, right? So the, to my mind, the advantage of that is then if, you, if you're Team Homan, and you want to have, you know, a player from every province and you're fully funded and you don't want to enter for the Scotties that year, that's fine. No one's going to stop you. Go play the slams, make as much money as you want, go to the Canada Cup, destroy everybody. Then you've got like a nice three, four month kind of preparation run to get ready for Worlds. You're nice and rested. Great. You win for Canada. Everybody's happy. Right. And that's fine. And if you want to give up playing in the Scotties, that's fine. 
And then it's totally fine if the Scotty and Briar are are not the kind of tier one events, the winner of that event gets to then go to the Canada cup the next year and should get a bunch of perks. And then if you're not one of the five or six fully funded teams out there, that's going to press you go have to have to qualify back through the provincial playdown process. Right. And so basically fine, four or five teams, five, maybe even six teams get fully funded by curling Canada. They can go out there, win the CTRS points, and let them make as much money as they want. That's great. But then you can still use the Sprott, Scotty, and Briar as events where the Krista McCarvels of the world, right? These kind of teams that are still really good, but for whatever reason, can't quite kind of get to the pro level in terms of being able to take time off work and do everything else. The, you know, These kinds of teams can still have something to shoot for. And then if they do really well there, that can then let them transition to becoming a professional team. And if teams suck and kind of crash out of the CTRS, then they've got to come all the way back through the provincial playdown process and kind of get to it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my idea is kind of similar because I think I think you either have to get rid of residency rules or strengthen them because I think going half in is making no one happy. What I think that they'll do is I think they're just going to get rid of residency rules. So we're, we're sitting here going over all these options. I personally think they're going to wind up getting rid of them, uh, which will have repercussions that we'll talk about uh, when I think that happens. So my idea is similar to yours. The Canada Cup determines who goes to Worlds for Canada. And I'm saying this, I'm, this is an idea from an American. So, you know, Take it with several, several grains of salt. The Canada Cup winner goes to uh, is is your world's representative uh, in Canada. Residency rules are strengthened. All four of your players have to live in the same province in order to play down. The winner of the Canada Cup gets a slot in the Briar and the Scotties. So that's your one team that doesn't have those residency rules. So the elite teams do have a way to get into the Briar and the Scotties. If they choose to put together all-star teams whose end goal is the Olympics, they still have a way to get into the Briar and the Scotties. And the winner of the Briar and the Scotties gets a shot, gets a spot in the next year in next year's Canada Cup. So they also have a they also have a path to world. So the elite teams have a path to the Briar and the Scotties. The provincial teams have a path to get to Worlds. For both, it's a little harder. So you're you're having to choose, but the path is still there. Yeah, that's reasonable. I think so. I think maybe let's talk about Mike's proposal, Mike Fournier's proposal a bit too, because I think it's interesting. So his version is uh, basically a hybrid, and so his proposal was basically the top five teams on CTRS get to go to the Briar regardless of uh, their affiliation. So they can be completely open without residency requirements. And then the kind of, then he wants to kind of condense the, oh, actually it's top four teams in CTRS as of January 1st. So no residency rules were required. You just got to grab one of the top four in the CTRS. Then he proposed uh, seven regional provincial spots. So he basically combines regions. So he condenses Northern Ontario and Ontario into an Ontario team, Manitoba and Saskatchewan into 
uh, a single team, Alberta, single team, BC, a single team, the North that he's calling Northwest territories, Yukon and Nunavut are all a single team. Then he combines Quebec and New Brunswick and the coast, which is Newfoundland, Nova Scotia and PEI. And he says the state, the residency rules are the same as today. So three from the same province and one import allowed then team Canada. So that keeps regional representation and that keeps some kind of residency rules intact. Uh, and it's, it allows kind of more of the star teams into the briar. And then it brings it back to a traditional 12 team format, 11 round robin games, standard playoff system. So what do you think about that one? I like the idea of going back to the full round robin. Um, and I'm not sure I'm not sure the idea I had gets you there. Um, I think it maybe it does if you combine the Ontarios and combine the North, you can probably get down to the number of teams you need to make it a full round robin. I'll say this also with if you're if you're gonna have one um, one out of province spot uh, spot, here's my idea for that. Make it like NCAA transfer rules. If you move to a, if you change provinces and you don't live in that province, you have to sit out a year. So you can bring in a top player that's going to strengthen your team um, to fit that out of province residency rule, but you're going to have to find someone else as your fifth for at least one year because they can't participate in playdowns for one year. That's interesting. So it basically stops people from bumping around from province to province every year. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting, interesting idea. That'll, that'll probably get backlash, but I'm not against it. I mean, I, I'm so let's let's just think through a little bit what happens if they keep it as it is but abolish residency rules, right? Because you could almost imagine a scenario where I don't know, not to say that Team Botcher would do this, but let's say they say, ah, oh, we don't want to get past Team Cooey every year. Let's just go play out of the Yukon. <laughs> oh, that would absolutely happen. Right? 100%. You would see you would see a top basically you would see top teams almost and I guarantee you it would happen behind the scenes at the patch the year before basically drafting provinces. Where team A one team decides they're going to go play out of Yukon, one team decides they're going to go play out of Quebec. Um, because the the path to the briar is easier. Okay, so then let's just think it through. If you're and those are those are going to be the teams that are hated. By the way, <laughs> they may be hated, but then if if you're the UConn, if you're a UConn curling fan, right? And let's say let's say it's Botcher. You're the UConn curling fan. The UConn curling fan. But let's say you're the Quebec curling fan. Now the jam is retired. Uh, you know, yeah, you know, Mike, Mike, and and Marty Kretz are both kind of great. Great curlers, but you know, if Botcher decides to parachute into Quebec, am I cheering for kind of Team Botcher, Team Boucher? I don't know, what, I don't know, Boucher. What do we call him? Maybe change his name to Boucher or Bouchard or something, right? But Team Botcher playing for Quebec, and Quebec's got a legit shot at winning. Do people like that, or is it the romance of someone coming from your local club and winning the Briar that matters? I think it would be the opposite. And Carrie Galusha said this on the Two Girls in the Game podcast that they had people that that, that they got a lot of backlash for bringing in a out of province player when they were playing down from from Northwest Territories. Yeah, so that's when they went to. But is that from the competitive curlers in the territory, or is that from the fans? From what I remember, and this it's been a few months since I listened to that episode. um, It sounded like it was coming from you know the people. 
you know, the, the people who usually support Northwest Territories uh, curling. Yeah. So, I mean, because I'm wondering, yeah, I guess I could see it both ways. But here's the thing, right? Despite all the booing of Rachel Holman at the Ontario final, I guarantee you 90, 90 to 95% of Ontario curling fans will be cheering for Holman on Sunday, right? Yeah, probably. You know, and would you rather have Rachel Holman representing your province or, you know, Joni Nieslider to represent your province? Like some woman who's like not a great curler. You want the best person representing your province if you want to cheer for your province, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that could be that could be the other scenario. What that does then for competitive curling in your province, I don't know, right? Like we've certainly seen the opposite effect. And Mike points this out in his blog is that if – you know, as soon as Gushu became Team Canada, entries in, Nova, in Newfoundland and Labrador are shot through the roof. They're getting 12, 14 teams a year signing up because they know this is their shot to get mm-hmm. to the briar while Gushu's Team Canada. So it kind of goes both ways. And maybe one of those teams, maybe Greg Smith, because he's been to the briar, becomes a kind of an elite competitive curler, right? Gushu is the same way when he started off. He was just was a guy who was kind of the cute young kid from Newfoundland and Labrador, just got his butt kicked by Randy Furby every year, right? <laughs> But it was that butt kicking that let him become the Brad Gushu we see today. Mm-hmm. And I think you would see teams like if if they separate the paths and they make they make it to where you can you basically have an Olympic path and a Briar path. If you if you make it to where the Canada Cup decides who goes to Worlds, but you still have still have a path through the through the Briar, I guarantee you there's going to be teams like. Gushu's team that try to do both, that try to be the top team in Canada while also having four players from the same province. And those are the teams that are going to become cult heroes. Yeah, for sure. I mean, for sure. It's not like, you know, people are obviously big fans of the big name teams. They have a lot of a following, but everybody loves an upset, right? And it's that's part of the joy of sport is watching a, t- you know, watching the Cinderella moment, right? The one shiny moment kind of a team making a great run, coming to get, putting it all together, right place, right time, and kind of pulling off the upset. That's the, that's what kind of a lot of people watch sports for. Yep. Yeah. We saw it here uh, in Richmond when VCU made the final four a few years ago and this town lost its mind. Uh, So, so where do you, where do you think this goes? How do you think it ends? I don't know. I, I, my money is actually on what we've said. I, my money is that they basically say the Canada Cup winner becomes Team Canada and there's no residency rules there. And, and part of my hunch for that is that the member associations in Curling Canada still pull a lot of weight. And I think there are good member association reasons for wanting to keep residency rules intact. And so if there's going to be strong pushback from the member associations on not changing the residency rules, the most logical thing. And if I'm, you know, high performance director at curling Canada, if I want the best, if I want to have the field, that's going to always produce the strongest possible team. The Canada cup does that. And so basically saying we're going to switch the Canada cup to make that the national selection event. And the winner of the Briar and Scotties get a berth in the Canada cup that probably kind of addresses the issue. I think I think your point about maybe having the Canada Cup winner get a berth in the Briar or Scotties is good too. And then maybe you look at, at trimming down the event. Right? Like maybe the Canada Cup winner becomes Team Canada. Yeah. And that, uh, you know, that, that gives them 
a basically a warm-up tournament for Worlds, right? Gives them a warm-up tournament for Worlds and then also lets them punch their ticket to next year's Canada Cup early. Uh, or, or you could even say it's the runner-up in the event the Canada Cup winner wins go. So maybe the, you got like two shots at getting the berth that way. I mean, there's lots of ways to do it. I just think that um, there's a lot of other things besides choosing the best team that the Briar and the Scotties does. Right. And it's tradition. We got to keep in mind extends back before there was a world curling championship. So it's not only about selecting the team that goes to the world curling championship. One last question before we move on. Um, there's, there's a difference between curling Canada and the member associations because curling Canada, they get their money from, from ticket sales and from the season of champions and the TV contract where the member associations, you know, Curling Canada doesn't get any money from the the fees for people entering playdowns, but the how how much does that affect the member associations' uh, finances? The number of teams that are entering playdowns. I think a fair bit. That's like one of their their major ways to make money, right? So it's basically club dues and uh, signups for for playdowns. And if all that starts to cave in, if first the competitive events start to cave in, and then you see contraction at the club level because fewer people want to play because the, the competitive side of the game's dying and they'd rather do something else to get their competitive juices flowing, then that also has pretty serious impact. So, you know, I, I think the rise of the Travelers Cup kind of maybe allows what I call club competitive teams something, but there's there's still got to be something more significant for the kind of good amateur, if you will, to play for. And both the Scotties and the Briar were amateur events and their format is set up to be an amateur championship. Whereas the Canada cup has always been conceived of as a pro championship. And so to try to shoehorn in professionalism into an event that its core is amateur is, is I think where a lot of the trouble is coming from. Okay. So no matter what the, the, the solution to this problem is going to have to both satisfy curling Canada's desire to have, to have elite curlers involved and have that TV contract be what it is, but it also has to satisfy the member association's desire to have, um, to have a pool of money come from playdown entries, right? Yeah. And so, you know, it could be that the Canada cup eventually becomes the bigger event in people's minds and, and that's fine. Right. Like there's, you know, an event can kind of over time in any sport, right? Like when the Super Bowl first started, it was nothing, right? It was kind of this, this weird afterthought, right? And so if the, if the Canada Cup basically becomes the Super Bowl of Canadian curling, just because it becomes more significant, because that's how you select your national champion. Uh, so be it. It doesn't mean that the other events become less significant. Like you're still growing the game. And uh, I think that kind of keeping some of that tradition and still, you, you'll still get very, very good teams, right? Because basically, a lot of those teams will probably still kind of play down. Like, not all of these elite teams are kind of forming cross-province. Like, the Botcher team's completely kind of in province to Alberta. Doesn't need to have any issues with residency rules. And so, they may very well off to play down in both. And you can think of lots of examples on both sides of the, the ledger for that. Um, but... I don't, I don't think that doing that kills the Briar and Scotties like some people suggest. I think that actually maybe letting it be what it is lets it then kind of keep its status as an event. And I think it'll always have a, a strong following just because of the history, tradition, the provincial ties and everything else. All right. Well, we were going to do Scotties and Briar previews, but 
uh, we've been talking for an hour and 20 minutes and that's plenty. Uh, I don't know. Do you want to, do you want to pick a winner on each side just for bragging rights? Well, this is, this is the Scotties, right? Do you want the Briar too or not? Yeah, let's just pick, yeah, because who knows when we're going to be able to record next. So you want to just uh, you want to just pick a couple just for bragging rights between the two of us. All right. So you said who have I got? Homan Jones or the field? I'm picking yeah. the field. All right, I'm taking Rachel Homan. Um, I don't I don't think she loses. I think she run. I th- I'm I'm taking Rachel Homan and I'm taking Rachel Homan to run the table. And of course, oh, wow. I'm. I'm saying this after uh, I predicted Eve Muirhead to run the table, and she lost three times. But uh, I'll go with I'll go with home home in in no losses. <laughs> I will say the reason I'm picking the field is there's been a lot of upsets already in playdown season this year, and uh, I kind of feel like it's an upset year. Like there's new team, start of a new cycle, new teams emerging, and I think we'll see a new team emerge. Not sure who it's going to be, but uh, you know. I could see Team Scheidegger running the field, like getting into the wild card game, kind of repeating what Einerson did last year and getting the job done in the final. Uh, so that might be my dark horse if I had to pick a team team, but I'm going to just pick the field since you gave me that choice. Right. I I will be surprised if we have a I, – I will be really surprised if we have a first-time winner in this event. I think that it'll I, – I, I think home and no losses, but – uh, other than that, I think it'll be either Jones or Carey. I don't see a first-time winner this year. Um, uh, the Briar. You know what? Give me Scott McDonald. I am. Ta- I am. I am taking Scott. <laughs> I'm going double Ontario. I'm. I am taking Scott. Uh, Scott McDonald is a golden god. You know he. He's going to win it. Ooh. All right. I got. I'm taking got, the upset on the men's side. <laughs> I'm going to go wild card again. Botcher wins the wild card game and runs it runs the table what are you gonna do what are you gonna do if he loses the wild card game uh then i don't have to watch the briar (laughs) (laughs) do you want to give us a backup pick just in case oh god uh take marty let me take marty (laughs) uh i'll go with i'll go with mcruthers all right (laughs) the qn Carruthers team Oh yeah, and I said to you on in our chat, it ends with uh, <laughs> they're going to end up with some weird ass lineup, right? With like uh, <laughs> with Colin. They're going to start off zero and three. They're going to move Mike to lead, and then they're going to run. The it'll, table. it'll be something like that. They're, they will have four <laughs> lineup switches over the course of the week, and uh, they'll win it. So it's either so some McRuther, so similar, similar to the past, similar to wins, race. yeah. Yeah, the Pat Simmons year. Yeah, exactly. Which was also first year of a cycle, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. All right. Well, the, it's going to be fun to watch. Uh, if you're in the U.S., you can watch the Scotties and the Briar on ESPN3.com. Uh, so it also works out because on Apple TV, I can just stream it right on my TV, and it's it's like having it's like having TSN. It's pretty great. Um, Thank you guys for for listening to us. Um, when we return, we will probably be reviewing the Briar and the Scotties. Uh, we'll also be reviewing uh, Jonathan's time at the English Men's. Uh, before we get out of here, do you want to tell people about uh, the English Men's and what we can expect and if we can if we can watch that? I'm not going to make you preview it because you're playing in it, but uh, <laughs> let er- let everyone know uh, what's happening uh, in England 
uh, as you try to tr- try to win the English Men's Championship? Let's see. The English Men's Championship, my team has finished third the last two years. Uh, initially, eight teams were signed up, but two pulled out. So it's a six-team field. We've changed the rules. Before, a six-team field meant the dreaded double round robin played between a Wednesday and a Sunday. So 10 games plus a final between a Wednesday and a Sunday, all 10 end games. So uh, we've the, the, the Crows got together, and I think common sense has prevailed. So now we have a single round robin and then a more complicated playoff system in Switzerland. basically uh john brown who basically runs english curling uh has been kind of doing it for years uh he's an engineer by training and uh also sits on the wcf rules committee so he is the most kind of best kind of attention to detail person I've, i've seen in curling anywhere basically so he worked through every single possible scenario and then came up with a playoff scenario for every situation uh, with a kind of a couple of rules being in place. So if a team runs the table undefeated and every other team is on two losses or more, then there's no playoff at all. There's two teams kind of close together, say five and one and four and two and everyone else is further back. Then you have a, a kind of best of three playoff. And then if it's kind of a log jam, then it falls into kind of various versions of a page playoff format system. And there, there is a full page explaining every single possible playoff scenario, <laughs> depending on what happens. So, Oh my God, it's choose your own adventure, but for curling, I love this. Basically. So our team's goal is try to make it to Saturday in a playoff position and then see what the hell happens. Awesome. All right. Can we, can we yeah. watch, can we watch online? I don't know. So uh, there is. So Dumfries does have streaming facilities. Uh, normally, John Brown does the commentary, but because uh, for like the, the normal umpire for the event couldn't make it, so JB's John Brown's going to step down and kind of be the umpire. And so I don't know if there's going to be any kind of uh, live stream this year. I know you've you've occasionally watched my games on the live stream. We've had some- oh yeah. <laughs> We've had some. We had the one a few years ago where my skip, uh, after he blew a shot, uh, slammed his broom and broke it in half. <laughs> didn't you? Didn't you fall one year? Uh, I haven't fallen. No. So last year, uh, Jamie Moulton did like a body slide dive. It's somewhere on Twitter. So he's the he's the second on uh, Team Reed, the defending champ. So last year he kind of was sweeping a bunch of rocks, going all in. Hit the house, didn't want to burn anything, so basically did a Superman slide and died. <laughs> it was pretty like head first slide, <laughs> right into the hack. So that went kind of mini viral. Uh, I think my biggest blooper was uh, we were sweeping a stone one year, and Ian, uh, Ian, my sweeping partner, kind of got in the way, and my head kind of went right into his crotch. <laughs> and he's married to Lisa Far now, and his line to me was. That's the most action that part of my body's got this week. <laughs> <laughs> so so the, it, it may not be the highest quality of curling, but the English curling YouTube feed has always got a bit of comedy in it for sure. All right. Hopefully that's available. All right. Well, good luck to you, Jonathan. Hopefully we will. Hopefully you win it and we'll see you uh, at European A's next year. Thank you, Team Reed. Um, thank you guys for listening. Uh, if you need to get a hold of us, you can email us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at Curling Podcast. Uh, we are also on Facebook and Instagram. Um, 
Please remember to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stutcher, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please, if you enjoyed this, uh, let your friends know uh, that they need to listen to this podcast about curling that went on and on for an hour and a half. So thank you again if you've made it this long, and we will talk to you soon.